After a long weekend without Mets baseball, the boys are back in town with nine games in the next six days. Buckle up. We look at a triple stack of doubleheaders coming up this week and how the Mets rotation could line up against the Marlins and Yankees. Speaking of rotation, David Cohn was a staple of the Mets starting rotation in the late 80s and early 90s. We will chat with a five-time World Series champion, five-time All-Star, and Cy Young Award winner. All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome one and all to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. That's my co-host and former Mets pitcher, Nelson Figueroa. I'm Jake Brown. Subscribe to Amazing But True on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Give your boys a five-star rating and write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FiggyNY and at Jake Brown Radio. Unfortunately, another week where Figgy does not follow me on Twitter. He does on Instagram. Uh, but a guy who did follow me back on Twitter is our guest this week as David Cohn joins us later in the show. But first off, Figgy, we got to get into the Mets because they are playing baseball this week. It's here. It was very weird this weekend. My social agenda was wide open. I had no Mets baseball to watch. So I was out and about. I went to Manhattan. I went to Central Park. I went there for the first time the city since March 12th. So it'd been over five months. Very weird to be in the streets of Manhattan right now. Uh, very gloomy. Not many people out. It's just a bizarre scene. It just feels like a snowstorm every day Is with no like I am legend. Yeah. I thought Will Smith and a couple of robots were going to pop out. And it, you know, in a couple of years that might be the case. I think the robots are going to, you know how the highline when they first put that up together was like, okay, this is a little eerie. Well, it's Beyonce saying the girls, they run the world. Soon it's going to be robots. They run the world. <laughs> and uh, that's going to be the remix in like five years when this pandemic is over and New York will recover. And I am confident in saying that New York is strong. We are New York strong. And the Mets are strong because they seem to be A-OK to play baseball. So let's set it up for you. Tuesday will be a twilight doubleheader against the Marlins. The Marlins are the quote-unquote home team in the second game of the doubleheader, despite it being played at City Fields. They make up that game that got postponed from Thursday as one player and one member of the personnel were tested positive for COVID. They are starting to do better. They were symptomatic, was this report, but everyone else is fine. All other tests have come back positive, so all is negative. okay. Uh, negative. negative, sorry. Yes, if they're positive, we'd have weeks, oh. more weeks without baseball, and I don't know how much longer I could go. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so Tuesday will be a twilight doubleheader. Then Wednesday, one game against the Marlins. Thursday, one game. And then it gets crazy. The Subway Series this week. And we talked about possibilities on the last show. And I realized that next Friday, the Yankees actually already have a doubleheader. So they couldn't do a doubleheader next Thursday. So for that reason, Friday and Sunday this weekend at Yankee Stadium will be two doubleheaders. Saturday will be one game. And remember, no one's really pointing it out. You got to remind the people, give the people what they want folks all double headers will be seven innings which for the Mets figgy is you can look at a benefit because it puts them in an interesting scenario this week where maybe Jacob deGrom goes Tuesday and Sunday and he goes all seven innings saves your bullpen for the Mets I know and not having to use middle relievers and some of these guys and overworking them this could end up being a blessing in disguise oh absolutely and I think when you're looking at what most of the starters have a problem with is going deeper into the games right 
right now. I just looked up stats about, you know, the Mets starting rotation. There is no starting rotation. The only one that qualifies right now is Jacob deGrom. Everybody else hasn't made enough starts to qualify as a starting pitcher uh, when it comes to statistics. So what you're looking at right now is the, an overworked bullpen that got some much needed rest, albeit, you know, for uh, not a great reason. At the same time, you get to kind of re-rack and, and put some things in order in a way where these seven inning double headers will actually help you because you can have actual guys splitting the double header, you know, only going one time through the lineup if they get through the fourth inning, maybe bring in a stopper type guy in there if there's anybody on base and then you can let the other guy piggyback off of him and you can have the Oswalds of the world and you can have, uh, you know, Steven Matz moving back in for, you know, with a very short leash, of course. So, but this is still odd. It's a lot of baseball in a short amount of time, but uh, with the way that things are going this year, this is what you uh, are fortunate enough to do is the seven inning games where you can have a Jacob deGrom possibly go uh, complete game and you know he's going to want to go complete game. Maybe, uh, you know, give away if, if they're up big, uh, be able to give away to uh, uh, somebody to close the door out. But I think Jake is going to want that seven inning game badly. Peterson should be coming back towards the end of this. Uh, Waka should be activated so that you got a guy who's coming off where you don't have to worry about his pitch count too much. He can give you 80 pitches, which will get you hopefully through the fourth, fifth inning. And um, I, I think it sets up nicely for them. So it's, I feel much more confident about it than I did about the Subway Series coming up. And it was uh, the three guys that were almost just left over. Um, you know, you had, who was it? Porcello. Uh, Gazelman and Oswald. And Oswald with, with a matchup. So and listen, I, the Yankees I, have a similar issue, Figgy, because they're going to have to throw out like guys like a Michael King and some of these guys who they haven't really seen much of because they're dealing with injuries with James Patrick out here for a while yeah and that's what we said about this season this season it was a it's going to be a, a war of attrition you're going to see so many teams every team has done it every team in the national league east has almost dealt with covid they've had players missing i mean once soda was out from day one um you look at the the phillies had to deal with the marlins issues or they only had five what, what was it three games through the first two weeks of the season they've had to play catch up it's hit the nl east pretty hard and uh now you look at you know, the way you have to kind of play catch up in these games it seems almost like not that it's not professional baseball, but seven inning games and, and just kind of double headers. This is things that are mind boggling. This would never happen, you know, in a regular season. But this is that that kind of year that we said that the last team standing may literally be the last team standing. And starting tomorrow, the Mets will play 34 games in 34 days to finish the season. And remember, there are a couple of off days. I know that sounds like they're playing every day, but because of the double headers uh, and the Mets also in, in minor news related release Brian Dozier yesterday. So RIP Brian Dozier was good knowing you and your two hits or two singles that he basically had here. Uh, they didn't really have any use with him. Luis Guillorme is tearing the cover off the ball as kind of the backup infielder. So Dozier, there's no spot for him. And you can already envision it, Figgy. Jacob deGrom goes seven shutout innings, but the score is 0-0. And then in the eighth inning with a runner automatically on second, the bullpen blows it, and I really hope that doesn't happen. I really would love just a smooth, like, complete game. Seven-inning complete game shutout or just a seven-inning one run, two runs, and the, get, the team gives them enough support because you could really work yourself into two wins with DeGrom this week. And, you know, let's look at it because the big thing for the rotation this week is – 
I think Waka is going to be fine. The Peterson we haven't heard much on, but Waka did throw the bullpen through the simulated game, so it seems like there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to pitch at least 60, 70 pitches at some point this week. So maybe that factors in. Maybe you want him uh, on Friday, so you have him in the doubleheader, so you don't have to use the bullpen much there as well. Um, and maybe you want Lugo in the longer game. I don't know how they're going to work it, but basically if Peterson and Walker are back, you have some semblance of DeGrom, Porcello, Lugo, Waka, Peterson, and then you're going to have to mix Gazelman and then maybe even Mats on Saturday or Mats in one of the seven-inning games, or you do a Gazelman-Mats mix, but it, there's there's some scenario here where you're going to have to use, because of the doubleheaders, Oswald or Mats this week. Yeah, and that, and the way that Oswald pitched last time, you would be fine with that. you got to remember who the competition is, right? I'm not trying to pitch him against the Yankees. If I have a chance to pitch him against the Marlins, great. Throw him up there against the Marlins, uh, and and I think he can compete with them and and do a good enough job through four or five innings, and you would love that. I think with the days off, you want to keep most of your guys you'd want to keep in uh, some kind of, you know, rhythm, some kind of routine. But like I said, there's only one guy that's qualified to be even called a star, and that's Jacob DeGrom, and he needs to pitch early and often. So if you can get him back on the bump, have him twice in a week, you do that in a heartbeat. What I'm looking for is guys having to step up you know, you're going to see guys getting called into games in different roles. There's seven inning games. So that's two innings earlier. So guys mentally, you know, well, you know, my, my inning is the, the eighth inning. I'm the ninth inning guy. Well, there is no eighth and ninth inning. You got to get it ready for the end of the ball game. You got to get ready a little bit sooner. You got to know. And, and that's something that they're not used to. They haven't done it yet. You know that I wouldn't want that to be called into question. So I, I know, I know for a fact that they, they're going to have them prepared and they're going to tell them, Hey, get, get started stretching, you know, in the third inning instead of in the fifth, you know, guys be ready because we're going to have to call on you and it's going to be rapid fire. You know, when you talk about these games, it's only seven innings. You got to match up. You got to go with the uh, best relievers that you have to get those quick outs. Um, so Luis Rojas is managing will be uh, watched with a very, very watching under a microscope. And I know you already do that. So I'll have to watch just as closely as you do. Yeah. And uh, I'm always, I always got my microscope on my telescope. Uh, it was interesting guys in the press box, not covering games, how to use their binoculars. So all sorts of, uh, <laughs> scopes and binoculars. God, I haven't used binoculars in, in a very long time. Um, I'm trying to think when I even use them in the nineties. Like what did we use binoculars for? Maybe like when you were sitting in the upper deck. Yeah. Maybe at Shea I actually sat in the last row at Shea once in like 2000 and I thought I was going to fall over. I mean, it's scary <laughs> up there. That, I, that was steep. It's very steep, too. That was, that, that was uh, Harold and Kumar high. I mean, that was another <laughs> level. Cheech and Chong high up Cheech there. Cheech and Chong. That, coming. Yeah. <laughs> in the last row. So, yeah, the rotation's interesting. And you also have to factor in, Figgy. Do you want to use your two best starters in the same day? Because you need to spread them out to use them next week. You have to plan for the schedule ahead after that Yankee series. Uh, after they play the Yankees, they will have an off day on the 31st. And then the Orioles for two, Yankees one, Phillies four, Orioles two more. And again, the Orioles haven't been bums. I mean, they've been competing. Uh, they're not going to make the playoffs most likely. I can't guarantee it, though, because right now they are 14-14, and 14, and they would make the playoffs if the season ended today. So there is a chance we do see the Orioles in the playoffs, which would show you how weird this area is if the Baltimore Orioles find themselves in the playoffs. But it makes you think, like, you might not use DeGrom and Porcello on the same day. 
but you do want DeGrom and Porcello and maybe even Lugo going up against the Yankees because with Aaron Judge, like you said, you already saw what Oswald and the Expedi- Expedition, Expedition and ex- Exhibition came against the Yankees, what he did against them. Aaron Judge hit one in Staten Island. And once you go to mm-hmm. Staten Island, I mean, you don't you don't even retrieve that one. There's too much traffic to get there. Um, too, too many guidos. Yeah, too many guidos and guidettes there. I mean, unless we're fist pumping and GTLing for the rest of our lives, uh, I'm going to pass on any time Staten Island. I haven't been there, I don't think, since a girl I dated freshman year. And good reason I never went back. But uh, he, he would hit he would hit Monmouth shots. Monmouth, Monmouth the Monmouth uh, Rivercat shots if Oswalt were to face Judge. So you kind of want the elite going up this weekend. And that leads me into the point of, do you worry about getting more potential starting pitching? And Brody Van Wagenen just addressed it that it seems like they're going to be conservative. And they look at Walken Peterson as, I hate the quote where it's like, those are our trade acquisition guys. Guys coming off the injured list. Stop. It's corny. It's dumb. But in this year, you have to accept it because why trade away minor leaguers for three weeks? And then what if COVID happened or something else happens? There's no use to trade guys away for a month. And maybe if they're for next under contract next year, you kind of just got to wait until the offseason to make any deals. Yeah, you're not trading any top prospects to go and acquire somebody unless, you know, you're going to be acquiring them for a considerable amount of time. You're not going to go get a rental player or rental piece. You're not going to go out and try and get Johnny Cueto from the San Francisco Giants and offer him, you know, Mauricio, you're not going to do it. You're not going to sit back and say, oh, you know, we're going to go for it right now. But I've said this for a long time, right? Brody Van Wagenen is here on a three-year deal. He can't have a five-year plan. And in this year, it wouldn't matter if they won or there's an asterisk or whatever you want to call it next to it. If they had a chance to win and they didn't go for it, it would still be a bad look to sit back and say, oh, we could have, we should have. I don't think Brody has is going to play it that way. I think he has to speak it that way. That's what you do as a poker player, right? You're not going to be there at the table and, and sitting there going, oh, I've got terrible cards or I'm going all in. You want to be able to kind of, you know, put it out there, you know, that, hey, if, you know, we're interested, of course, because everybody that's got a chance to make the playoffs is going to be interested. But at the same time, I'm not putting up and dangling Noah Syndergaard around like I was in the offseason to, you know, be able to strike up a conversation. Now, if it was to involve uh, Fernando Tatis and getting that talent over into New York, of course you would. But at the same time, I think you got to be a little bit more conservative, a little bit more smart when it comes to who you're going to acquire and what they can uh, do to, to help you and what area you need help. The bullpen seems to have kind of uh, rounded itself nicely. Uh, the lineup, we don't give the lineup enough credit. Do you know that? I'm going to ask you one question. You know who leads all of baseball in batting average right now? It depends on minimum at bats. Luis Guillorme is. No, no. As far as team, team batting average. Team batting average. It's team batting average. Are you going to say it's the Mets? It's the Mets. Really? Team bat. Team batting average. New York Mets are number one in all of baseball. That's surprising to you? Well, Guillaume and Cano are boosting those stats. Yeah. Well, you sure. got, you got, well, it doesn't matter. It's at bats and at bats. And everybody gets the same total amount of at bats. They're also leading baseball and left on base. <laughs> so that, again, works against it. So they've been doing a great job of putting the ball in play. Uh, they lead the league as well and batting average of balls just put in play. So they're not striking out a ton. Um, we're used to seeing them strike out 10 plus times a game la- 
last year and it was getting frustrating at certain points, but I think they've done a much better job of putting the ball in play. And, and the littler guys, the lesser known guys are the ones that are really doing a lot more. Dominic Smith has been a blessing in disguise and you put him in the, hey, you'd have told me last year, Dominic Smith's going to play a lot of left field. I would have went nuts because you thought you had Cespedes coming back. J.D. Davis was playing out there. McNeil's playing out there. All those guys are playing out there. And if you're going to tell me Dominic Smith's going to be your everyday left fielder, I would have said, oh, no, no, no. This, this is going to be horrible if he has to be that. And we said that, I think, on the preview show. We said that. And now you look and you're like, hey, Dominic Smith, quiet, cool, has just – all he does is hit. He hits in his sleep. He hits when he's awake. He's too good a hitter, and he's also improved in left where he's not an, as much of a nightmare. And I think having the whole offseason to get his reps in definitely helped him. He's still not great, but we've had – we've seen him make a couple of sliding and catches a nice plays. Yeah, so and, and that's what you want to be able to be is, is competent out there where you're not fearing for your own – you know, the way you play the outfield. You're not – a detriment to the team that that's a big fear that players have especially when they're playing out of position remember he, he was labeled as a gold glove and i say gold glove first baseman i hadn't seen that from him he's a good first baseman but he's no jt snow what you're looking for out of dom smith right now is he's comfortable swinging the bat and he's comfortable in the middle of a lineup where he wasn't really supposed to be a middle of the lineup type hitter. He was that guy that was gap to gap, bat for a high average. And then what did he do that first year? That first year he came to the big leagues, he started swinging for the fences and hits like nine home runs and 70 at bats. And they're like, oh, extrapolate that. You know, if you give him 600 plate appearances, he's going to hit over 35, 40 home runs. That's not the type of hitter he is. He takes advantage of some hitters counts and doesn't miss a pitch, which is great. But I do like two strike Dom. I like RBI Dom. I like Dom with runners in scoring position and less than two outs who knows how to, you know, work the count and, and, and play the game the right way. So he's been a breath of fresh air. Uh, Alonso's coming along a lot better than he was. McNeil is still that X factor. They're doing all this hitting without McNeil actually hitting. His batting average continues to plummet down. And it's still, you know, in the high twos, in the high twos, uh, wherever it's at. But that's not McNeil. McNeil should be the guy that you would say, man, he has a chance to bat 400 in a short season. He's just been in such a funk and his body language is just so bad right now. He's like that golfer. He's like Tiger Woods when it was going bad and he'd swing the golf club and you'd hear that hellacious swing and but he make that contact and all of a sudden you just see his face like, oh my God, I'm terrible. That's what McNeil's like right now. And I, I got to see this guy get a, a nice three for four game with a couple RBIs, maybe a bomb to put a smile on his face and, and start enjoying baseball. Maybe the COVID scare can shake that into him to say, listen, you know what? You are still blessed to play this game and you're playing it at the highest level. Have some fun playing the game because they got to cut off the mics on the field. The problem is he'll go three for four and that one time he didn't get a hit, he'll throw a bat and hit Willow in right field. <laughs> and it's it's he, he has such bad anger management. And I don't know, maybe it's because guys are scared to approach him and help him with that. Like, he gets so angry that you, you're scared of him. I mean, you're scared to be six feet in within anyone. But now, because he gets so angry, you're worried to be near him. But coaching needs to say to him, goose for about calm down maybe he does need anger management because it is scary to see his reactions to things you're a human being you get mad at something it carries over that's just going to happen and it's clearly affecting him at the plate it it is it is and that's not the the player that we've seen and and yes i like the intensity don't get me wrong the intensity reminds me a lot of wally backman but wally backman had that intensity taking it out on the other team 
You know what I'm saying? Like he was sliding in the second base, trying to flip a guy at second base. You can't do that anymore. So that's how he got out his aggression when he didn't get that hit. He struck out looking or, or struck out with man in scoring position. He'd rip off his batting gloves and, you know, he'd walk out into second base and he would look for a way that he could, you know, do something later on in the game. And that was what enamored fans to a guy like Wally Backman. McNeil's that same kind of player where he is that 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 gritty gutsy kind of player he can do so many things right but what it looks to me like is he's pressing so hard so i mean i haven't seen a player press this hard that every single swing no matter what he hit a sack fly was a deep fly ball with a man on third less than two outs deep sack fly where he just missed hitting a home run and he was so mad about just missing the home run that as he came through the dugout I remember nobody wanted to even give him a high five because it looked like he was going to throw his helmet as he was walking through. And that's not that's not something that you want to be known as on the team. I know the cure. I know the cure to this as the plane flies over Shea Stadium in the background. <laughs> uh, maybe that was a UFO. I don't know. Um, I don't know what that was. I heard it over here, too. <laughs> I think there it's 2020. There's an asteroid hitting us. I think the cure to it, this it's this figgy puppies in the dugout. I think Willow oh needs God. to be in the dugout. We need him to hold him. We need something cute. We need a, we, we need the residential pooper they scooper. The they got the cutout. He could at least stare at the cutout nah, and be like, oh, he, my dog, Once you, you hold know? it, it's different. After a flyout, he holds that puppy. Guaranteed home run next time up. So puppies in the dugout. We need we need a bat boy and a pooper scooper boy. So bring out the pooper scoopers and get Willow. We need a young priest and an old priest, and we need some candlesticks. I get it. Superstitions run deep when it comes to ball players. For me, I got to see this guy having some more fun. He's too good of a player. Uh, I look at all the players around the league that look like they're having fun. And I don't know if it's the success that lets them allows them to have fun, but I, I look at like a Baez and I look at Tatis and I look at those guys. They're having fun because they're they're not pressing. This guy's pressing on every single swing. He fouls off a pitch and he's like, oh my God, I should have hit that. And then he gets three more swings and he still finds a way to leave that at bat more frustrated than he did when he went up to the plate. And that, that's been a disappointment so far this year. The good thing is Pete Alonso is above his, he's batting his weight now. He's 247. He's, you know, the internet says he's 245. He might've packed on the COVID-15. You know, I packed on the freshman 15 at Hofstra eating a lot of gummy bears, but Pete Alonso, uh, we don't know if he packed the COVID-15, but he's, he's hitting 247. So he's above his internet weight at 245. So good job at Pete Alonso. Coming up next, as we, we talked a lot of baseball and I really enjoy this chat with david Cohn. a lot of people talk about oh why is he in the mets show his roots were with the mets i mean after the 86 season he came there and he talks about coming to that team after uh they won a world series and you know kind of the hangover that came with it and david Cohn's a guy i wouldn't mind you know leading to a hangover i wouldn't mind partying with david Cohn. i could <laughs> kick back a, a a pack of white claws with david Cohn. so a pack of white claws yeah that yeah i don't know if he would let you hang out with him if he pulled up some white claws <laughs> no I'd, but, some bud lights of course yeah well <laughs> They, maybe use like the Bud Light koozie thing to mask it at least. <laughs> make, make it a Bud Light seltzer. Oh, get real tough on them. Oh, no, David. Yeah, David Cohn is uh, one of my all-time favorites. Just a grit, gritty, gutsy type of pitcher. The guy that you know, once you gave him the ball, it was like you'd have to fight him to take it out of his hand. Uh, so uh, we enjoy this. This conversation with him it was so much fun. Um, there's so much to learn from a guy like this, and continue to learn um, well after his playing days uh, a wealth of knowledge and um, uh, he lets you in a little bit on some of the uh, darker things that happen uh, with those Mets teams y'all gonna learn today David Cohn <laughs> next on amazing but true
And joining us now is a five-time World Series champion, four coming with the Yankees, one with the Blue Jays, a five-time All-Star, a 1994 AL Cy Young Award winner, the 1998 MLB wins leader, a two-time strikeout leader in 90 and 91. He pitched the 16th perfect game in MLB history on July 18, 1999. He's also tied for second all-time with 19 strikeouts in a single game. He compiled 194 wins and a 3-4-6 ERA in a pitching career that went from 86 to 2003 with the Royals, Blue Jays, Yankees, Red Sox. And of course, for all you younger Mets fans, it is true. David Cohn was very good with the Mets from 87 to 92 and then finishing his career there in 2003. He's now one of the Yankees voices in the Yes Network broadcast booth and he's the co-author of Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. It is the great David Cohn joining us on Amazing But True and you can follow him on Twitter at dcone 36 Coney, appreciate you joining us man how are you my pleasure jake you covered it all right there man i you got a couple things i forgot yeah you know, i need I, I need some oxygen after that that was <laughs> oh god i gotta breathe um that was a long intro but you deserve it and you had a long career and me and figgy were talking before he started let's just tell it how it is you got hosed in 1988 i mean i wasn't even an inch in my you know dad, mom's panties whatever the saying is that i wasn't i wasn't I born yet saying, jake. i don't i don't know I don't the, inch in your saying. daddy's panties i don't remember what the saying is but i wasn't even born yet but in 88, man, you had such better stats besides win total than Oral Hershiser and Danny Jackson, and you were hosed out of winning that Cy Young. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, I Hershiser, I think at the time, you know, when you, when you look at Oral Hershiser's uh, year that year, I mean, finished the year with six straight shutouts, and he broke a record that nobody thought was going to be broken in Don Drysdale's scoreless streak. So if you think about that, that really a nine innings, complete game. He actually went 10 innings in his last start there, but it was like the last six starts of the year for him. He just ran the table and broke Drysdale's unbelievable record. So pretty hard to go against Oral in that year. I'm a big fan of what he did that year. And I think, you know, Figgy, you know this. I think he was one of the first guys to throw that two-seamer at a left-handed batter and run it back to the inside, cor- inside corner at will. And then lefties just locked up all year. Uh, yeah, he was one of the, he was a, to me, he was kind of a trailblazer. Greg Maddox followed in his footsteps a little bit. So I don't think Hershiser got enough credit for kind of the, his style, the way he kind of changed pitching with that front door sinker that we see everybody throw nowadays. Well, you- you also had six less starts too, so that could have factored in. Figgy, what can you tell me what the saying is that I'm screwing up on? No, and I really don't want to even go there. I'd rather talk <laughs> it's about it's an itch somewhere. Yeah, there's definitely something there with you involved, especially what, when you're talking about Oral Hershiser and a trailblazer. You think about analytical minds way before their time. This guy, remember, he had the cheat sheet in his back pocket. He would look up and down the lineup at where he was at and knew how to pitch a guy. There was he was like one of the only pitchers who ever paused the game just to have this cheat sheet but he had that streak going and he was so meticulous about doing it it was impressive to watch I still say numbers pure numbers up and down and now that we realize that win totals aren't really controlled by the starting pitcher the win totals are you know we've seen that for Jacob deGrom able to win back-to-back Cy Youngs without even having 12 wins it's been very impressive I think for for me and for my money's worth i enjoyed watching that 88 season and, and watching you just absolutely carve people left, right, and center with a, uh, it wasn't just two pitch combination. It was the stuff that you had was nasty with the plus fastball 
able to elevate, able to throw the breaking ball up there. And of course, the Laredo slider. How did the Laredo slider come about? You know, I figured I'd always thrown it just back there since Little League days, wiffle ball. You know, I, I, I was 12 years old in 1975. And that's when the Red Sox were in the World Series. The big uh, Louis Fiant. That's the first time the world had really seen Louis Fiant. And the, I, I fell in love with Louis Tion. He threw a Laredo slider. He turned his back to the hitter. Uh, he had, uh, you know, he just had that charisma and that presence on the mound and trickery, as you know, also as well. And then to me, I, I just fell in love with him. And I tried to I tried to emulate him when I was 12 years old in the backyard. And I could always I could always throw a sidearm slider for some reason. And, you know, Figgy, you had a good slider too. You know, you know how you get a feel for it. You just kind of go with it. And the next thing you know, you're getting creative on the mound and using it in big league games. Yeah, that's the one thing is that you always have to adapt your game and continue evolving your game was there a, a pitch that you added later on in your career that kind of helped you stay at a high level for so long yeah you know I learned you know uh, the split finger fastball you know from Roger Craig and Roger Craig was you know a longtime pitching coach with the Tigers with the Tigers and Sparky and he was a manager with the Giants and we went on a Japan uh, all-star game tour to go play against the Japanese teams and he was there and I got a chance to talk to him and he showed me the proper grip on a split finger fastball and that's what he told me he said you're not throwing a forkball you don't have to split them too wide you just got to get your fingers outside the seams play with your thumb a little bit and throw it like a fastball and, and the light bulb went off for me and I just started throwing it as hard as I could and started moving my thumb around a little bit on the side and progressively got a better feel for it and really the split the splitter saved me against left-handed batters for, for really my Yankee career I think the six years I was with the Yankees I probably threw some of the best splitters that saved me when that you know I ran when I started to lose a little velocity you know off my fastball that's and that's one of the, the greatest things is that you continue learning continue progressing you talk about pitchers now and with all the technology and how to uh develop pitches and try to uh, almost create pitches for different arm slots different kind of pitchers you were able to do it and we were able to do it because just by experience and continuing to try and practice it the bullpen sessions you know getting a poor hitter who hadn't hit in a while hey stand in here against this slider i'm gonna throw it right at your head let's see what happens with it and i I think, again, when you talk about trailblazers, you were one of the guys that I remember just able to make the ball move around so much and yet still had the power stuff. That was what really impressed me the most about you. And, and you had that bulldog mentality, not, you know, not big guy in stature, but it was like, you know what, you're going to have to challenge me and I'm going to give you my best stuff, not just once or twice through the lineup. That's the one thing I want to get at. I was looking up at some of your stats for the fourth time going through the lineup, the fourth time. Nowadays, they don't even get to three. To be a starter, you go three times through the lineup when we were coming up, when I was coming up. You, the fourth time through the lineup, you had over 1,100 plate appearances against you. By comparison, Jacob deGrom, right now, two-time Cy Young Award winner in his career, he's only faced 96 batters fourth time through the lineup. So that just shows you like how the game has changed and evolved. But you were one of those guys that said, hey, I'm going to be out there as long as you give me the ball until the game is over. Yeah, Vicky, I think, you know, I I was, a, in all fairness to Jacob, um, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, I was allowed to throw 135 pitches a game. You know, there was a stretch with the, with the Mets where I, I averaged 135 pitches a 
game. And I also had a one nothing shutout against the Giants in, in 1992, I think, where it was, you know, I threw 166 pitches and a one to nothing shutout. So that would, you just, you could not get away with that. You, you would be fired tomorrow if you allowed Jacob DeGrom to do that. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. If I was, uh, if I owned a major league team or if I was a manager or a pitching coach, I'd want to protect that guy too. You know, I mean, 110, 115 pitches, that, that that's it. That's all you could allow him to throw. And that's why he's never going to get to the fourth time through the order. You know, I was allowed to do that. And, you know, uh, maybe I should have had a little more protection. I ended up with an, an aneurysm in my arm and my shoulder from, from probably throwing too many pitches. But uh, what's the right balance? I don't know. I just know these guys are so valuable. Jacob DeGrom is, is so valuable that you have to err on the side of caution and, and kind of hold him back. And it used to be a lot about wins. And Jacob DeGrom, one thing you got was a little bit of run support. Jacob DeGrom has not. And he will never come close probably to your win total because of that, and it's it's frustrating, and you know the game has transformed a lot, David, from when you pitch where wins don't have the same meaning, pitchers don't go as long. Put yourself in Degrom's shoes. If you're out there dominating every time and can't get a win, is there frustrations that built up? Did you ever have a, a you know a stretch where guys weren't scoring for you and you weren't getting wins? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all we've all been through that. Uh, you know, my first year when I left the Mets. After six years, I signed as a free agent uh, with the Royals. And that first year in 1993, I was I was last in the league in run support that year. I think I got you know whatever whatever last was. It was 2.8 runs a game, similar to what DeGroms had to, had to deal with. And I squeezed out an 11 and 14 record that year, even though I had a top 10 ERA. So I think that those were the first years where I started to take a look at things and say, you know what, one loss record can be overrated at times, but we all want them. You know, there's something tangible for your work that's still in the back of your mind. I'm sure you still want it but I think the fact that people are educated nowadays and Piggy you mentioned it Jacob DeGrom won the Cy Young Award a couple years in a row and one loss record really didn't even matter Uh, people know you know that that uh, you can be a victim of of not only run support but defensive support as well so you know the pitcher's got one job to do and uh, you know what happens after the ball leaves the bat or what happens when his offense is up is really out of his control so you can only control the things you can control. And that's the one thing that he really took it to another level because pitching became all about run prevention. You did that over the course of your whole career. We talk about runners in scoring position, a 212 batting average against you. 212 with runners in scoring position. So the light bulb kind of clicks on, and that's where you can take it to that next level and get a little bit nastier. That was something that I think watching you and seeing how you work, yeah, you get a guy on first base, you can still get that ground ball double play. But that guy gets to second base, and it's like, all right, strikeout mode here it comes that's exactly right you know i always felt that way and i think that's kind of been uh you know proven in today's numbers or at least if you're you know on, on the analytical side the value of, of a swing and a miss the value of missing back and taking the ball out of play when there's runners in scoring position is a big deal and uh you know i was always looking for the strikeout when you know when men on third and one out uh yeah strike them out man on second and no out strike them out I didn't I didn't want to leave it to chance I didn't want to say you know that ground that ground ball might not go at the shortstop it might find the hole so you know then that's where batting average on balls in play come into play you know where you start realizing you know there's a random variance to this game and uh the bounce of a ball might find you know it might find a hole a blooper might fall in but if you can strike somebody out that's what that's what you can control David Cohn joining us here on amazing but true 57 years old aging like fine wine though um unlike Figgy whose beard is 
is gray right now and could use a little just for men. I'm just kidding. Uh, he doesn't have to work with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I age you a little bit. And by the way, the saying is itch in your daddy's pants and it's from Lethal Weapon. So there we go. I did some research There you on go. That. Yeah, I knew uh, it was an itch. Also yeah. Lethal Weapon before you were probably born. Yes, exactly. But I've heard the saying many times from a guy, you know, Zig Fricasi in the business always would say that to me. Um, 1987, you come to the Mets, Coney. And, you know, did you go into that locker room and see a sense of swagger that they had or an overconfidence in that team where that didn't become a dynasty where it probably should have? Did you notice that maybe they took a hit that next year and even 88 when you guys came close but didn't win it? Did you sense some, I know you weren't there in 86, but did you sense overconfidence or something like that when you got there? Yeah, but, you know, they, they always had that that feel to them. You know, the swagger, the arrogant match. I mean, that was well established at that point. But I think more importantly, what I saw was, was a team that was had a rough offseason, a team that really partied hard. Within the first week I was there, I think Dwight Gooden had to go to rehab. Several other players were, were kind of hurt or kind of, you know, uh, still kind of uh, getting over, you know, the 86 season, you know, how hard they played that year and then also the spoils so, you know it's a short off season when you win a world series championship it's a really short off season and i saw some i saw a lot of guys show up at spring training sort of maybe not quite ready to go because of that and, and i guess i've been on championship teams i know what that feels like i know what that looks like and uh, you know that that spring training in 87 was a rough and ragged group uh, from 86 yeah you talk about the world series hangover they took it to another level that's for sure yes Exactly. Um, all kinds of hangovers for sure in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> so we, now now we, we we're kind of fast forwarding because we were hoping to be talking about subway series with you that it already would have happened this weekend but we're looking forward to the subway series coming up next any subway series memories that stick out for you you know the first one figgy in 1997 it, it was it was new at yankee stadium there was really half mets fans half mets half yankees whenever the mets would get it going it, it was weird at yankee stadium you'd see mets fans kind of rise up and start cheering it was kind of the same at shea stadium too back in the day so it was really interesting the first one in 97 uh, to me was uh, was remarkable because it was, you know you felt like you're a part of history you felt like you were going back to the 50s when the dodgers and Giants were still around and all the stories we heard of that era the golden era of baseball in new york you know that the people that were around talk about so it kind of felt like that you know and that that first one in 97 felt new i was talking with chris sheeran on pinstripe pod about this and he is against interleague and he thinks there shouldn't be a subway series i very much disagree with him i think at least for us mets fans it's something where we have a little, you know, competitive edge against the Yankees who beat them in a regular season game, and we got bragging rights. Do you like the, you know, six Subway Series, three in each stadium every year, and do you think it should keep going? I think, you know, the, the big ones have worked. You know, the, the obviously the major markets, it's always going to work. The Cubs and the White Sox, it's always going to work. Uh, the Dodgers and the Angels, the, the people are always going to want to see that. And, of course, the Yankees and Mets. Uh, there's some other down the totem pole a little bit where it gets a little iffy maybe, where there's not a rivalry. Uh, maybe it's not it doesn't quite make it, uh, as much sense. But, you know, either you're a purist or you're not. You know, you're progressive. And, and in this regard, you know, we may look down to realignment on down the road and see maybe the Mets and Yankees in the same division. Similar to this year where, you know, you're going to see, you know, just all the East Coast teams, you know, from a geographical standpoint, from a travel standpoint, kind of get, you know, there's realignment on the horizon. So if you're a purist, it's, 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 
close your eyes because it's not going to get any better, especially with expansion on down the road. If there's a team on the West Coast, say in Portland, that's going to help teams stay geographically, you know, within their time zones more often, I think is better for the players. Jumping time zones the way we've seen the last few years is probably one of the biggest changes I've seen in the game that has hurt the players. Um, There's nothing worse than jumping, you know, jumping around in time zones on one road trip where you hit two or three different time zones. Much different than when I played. When when I was with the, the Mets in the 80s, you know, we went to the West Coast twice a year and played all three teams and we were done with it, you know, and these guys are hitting the West Coast four and five times nowadays, at least in years past. So uh, the travel, something's got to be done about the travel in my mind as well. Without a doubt, that, that's something that a lot of people don't even consider because these guys are just, you know, they're just professional athletes. They shouldn't complain at all. The travel is some of the hardest part and I get it. You have, you're on charter planes and whatnot. But when you leave after a ball game, you get in there early. Sometimes things aren't as smooth as you'd like. And then you're constantly moving around. We see the NBA. They're taking, you know, they play three games in a week. And it's like, oh, God, we got to rest our stars. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, you got major league ball players trying to fit in that 162 games. I think the realignment idea that you're speaking of it speaks bonds, especially if there's a universal DH. It might rekindle or, or really spark some interest in some areas where there weren't any. So um, last question for me, what about coaching, Cody? Would you ever want to get into coaching? You know, I, I've, I've had that bug for a while, you know, and I, I interviewed for the Yankees job last year. And uh, it was great to go through the process, but I'm not sure, you know, where I'd fit in. It's such an all-encompassing job. You've got to be all in. As you know, Figgy and Jake, you know, too, as well. I mean, if you're going to take those jobs, boy, you know, and my agent told me, okay, you want to be a pitching coach, so you want to lose all your popularity, you want to take a pay cut, you want to work, you know, five times as many hours. Yeah, sounds great. Go right ahead, you know. sort of how, you know, you really got to have the love and you really got to have that commitment to, to fully immerse in that kind of a job. So, you know, I, I certainly, yeah, I've had that itch. I think it's, it's great to be thought of in that regard, but taking that leap is, is another thing altogether. Yeah, and I don't think you want to leave the, the smooth sounds of guys like Ken Singleton and Paul O'Neill and Michael Kay. Uh, not the best broadcast booth. Let's just tell it how it is. Gary, Keith, and Ron are number one, but your booth is right there probably behind them. Sorry to say here. We have to support the Gary, Keith, and Ron trio. Um, but I imagine... I'm, fan, I'm a fan, too, of them. I agree. Yeah. They, they, they are just one of a kind. Well, I, I imagine you love being in that Yes broadcast booth with those guys, too. It, it's hard to leave that job. Yeah, absolutely. I love what I do, and it is. You're right. You can sleep at night. You don't take the game home with you and when you put your head on your pillow at night, which is a big deal, and you know, I, I think we, we, we've hit our niche a little bit. You know, O'Neill and I, Paul O'Neill and I know each other very well. We have a hitter. He's a hitter. I'm a pitcher. You know, I played against him in the minor leagues. I played against him in winter ball. We were teammates. So there's a good dynamic there. I know Paul O'Neill about as well as anybody. So, yeah, I think I think we've got a lot better together. But you're right. It's kind of the next booth and there's everybody else. I I certainly agree with you there, although there's some great ones out there. True, true. And I I tell you what, as an analyst, one of the things that you learn is uh, you're never wrong. (laughs) You have the benefit benefit of uh, hindsight, and that's that's one of the things where – if you uh, carry a strong opinion um, and you've, again, your experience, you've been through it all. You've done it all. We read, read all the accolades over in the beginning. And one of the things that I also think that makes you unique is that you have failed and you have dealt with injuries. So that gives you that complete gamut as, a, as an analyst. 
that you're able to talk to every single situation of a pitcher, uh, of even a player, of dealing with frustrations, of, of not having that success, especially in New York, and also dealing with injuries. Yeah, I, I, that is such a great point, Ziggy. I mean, when you talk about it, uh, it's easy to forget how hard it is to play that game when you're in the booth. Uh, it's easy to get hypercritical and, and, and forget, you know, hey, wait a minute, uh, you made those same mistakes when you played, or don't ever forget how hard it is to play. I mean, these major league players are the best in the world at what they do, and uh, sometimes they make it look so easy that you forget that. So, yeah, that, that's that's a big part for every analyst to remember, or any, anybody in the booth. Uh, it is an extremely difficult game that they're trying to play out there. And when you lose that side of that, then, uh, you know, I, I think you lose a little credibility. Coming to the Mets to end your career in 2003, obviously the injuries took over, you didn't pitch great, but was did that have any meaning for you, ending your career in New York? Not exactly where it started, but where your success started was with the Mets and then coming back and finishing with them after you have all those titles, you got a handful of rings. To finish your career in New York, did that mean anything to you? It did. You know, I I took a chance, you know, and I would have taken the chance again. You know, I had one win. Well, the first time I pitched was, was the best time. And, you know, I, my, I got fooled at the end. And we're always the last ones to know. The, the pitchers or the athletes are the last ones to know. And my arm actually felt good. I thought, I always thought it'd be my arm, but it was my hip when I couldn't land. It was a, my landing leg when I couldn't land on it anymore. And I couldn't, you know, the next one day I got, I couldn't even hardly get out of bed after I pitched one game with the Mets in 2003. So that, that's when you know, you know, when you, you start gimping around and you, you're dragging your leg around because your hip is so so sore from the night before that you realize that you might be doing permanent damage here. So I had to walk away. But yeah, it was worth it. I really wanted to try to, it, it felt like a full circle for me come all the way back to the Mets after really getting my breakthrough with the Mets at the beginning. And, you know, it felt right at the time. I, I just wish it would have worked out a little better. And I'll always remember, I said this to Figgy before, I, I don't remember like what I had for dinner the other night, but I'll always remember that you induced a pop out, I believe, of Mike Piazza in game four of the 2000 World Series as your final out with the Yankees, breaking my nine-year-old heart in that series, as mm-hmm. I always say. And as I said to Luis Soho in his game-winning hit, uh, when he was on Pinstripe Pod last week. David Cohn, uh, we love you in the booth, man. Follow him on Twitter at dcohn36, Instagram, Coney3636. Go get his book that he co-authored with Jack Curry, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. Um, and we, we love talking to you, man. Hopefully we'll talk to you later in the season, and uh, we'll be listening to the booth. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. And that wraps up episode 21, the Todd Frazier, Lucas Duda, Carlos Delgado, or Cleon Jones episode of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I'll take Carlos Delgado in 21. Thank you, Jake, for producing the show yet again. Subscribe to Amazing But True wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars and write a nice review. We always appreciate your support. And I know something about 21. Boom! Blackjack. Aces, baby. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We will be back on Thursday as we preview the five-game Subway Series ahead. Just like they drew it up. For real this time. Enjoy baseball. Talk to you all Thursday. Stay safe.